The Old Testament lesson for today is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. This can be found on page 3 of your Pew Bible. The actions of the participants in this familiar story of Adam and Eve's descent into sin are a metaphor for all of human history. A reading from Genesis chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of, to the tree of life. May God has, add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Thanks be to God. What is the devil doing? What are the people doing? And what is the Lord doing? These are the questions I was asking as I was trying to figure out how to preach today on Genesis chapter 3. I was feeling a little bit daunted and intimidated on preaching on this giant chapter which changes all of human history. So I sat down with my notes and I printed out the the, the chapter, and I started with highlighters, just highlighting the various figures, the various characters in Genesis chapter 3, trying to just understand what was going on. And I was asking, what is the devil doing here? And I wrote down all the things he was doing. What are the people doing? And I wrote down the things they were doing. And what is the Lord doing? And I was writing down all the things that I saw the Lord doing in Genesis chapter 3. And after some time, I sat back in my chair and I looked at my notes, and I realized that the devil and the people and the Lord are all still doing today what they're doing in Genesis chapter 3. The devil's still up to what he was up to here. People are still doing what they were doing here. And thank God that the Lord is still doing what he was doing in Genesis chapter 3. So I want us to look at this together today, not just as a biblical event, but also as an allegory, also as instruction for what's happening in our world today. Let's begin with this question, what is the devil doing? What is the devil up to? In a phrase we learn in Genesis chapter 3, that he's lying and dividing. He's lying and dividing. Let's look at verse 1 to find out what's going on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I want to pause on this moment right here because it's very important for us to capture this. The serpent has entered into the perfect situation of the Garden of Eden, and he starts presenting to Eve a lie. And Eve, at least in this moment, Eve answers the serpent's lie with the word of God. She remembers the one rule that God had given to Adam and Eve. You may eat of any tree in the garden except for this one. So in this moment, this is the last moment, just take a snapshot of this in your mind, because tragically, this is the very last moment in human history before sin. Eve says, no, this is what the Lord said. But the devil is crafty. The devil is persistent in the form of a serpent. He presses in further. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is a particularly sinister lie of the devil. He says to Eve, effectively, God doesn't want you to have this. Because if you do, you'll be like God. That's what the devil presents to Eve. Now, this is really sinister because you might remember just two Sundays ago, we were studying the last part of Genesis chapter 1 when God creates humanity. After creating all the other things in nature, God creates the pinnacle of creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So in a very real and all-important way, Adam and Eve were already like God. They bore his image. We are already like God in the most important way. And the devil comes along and he says, God doesn't want you to be like him. But they already were. See, just the, the cleverness of this lie. He's twisting the truth. He's twisting the truth and presenting it as something appealing. And then in, uh, in verse 5, uh, For God knows that when your eyes will be opened, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And Eve, unfortunately, as we're about to see, she falls for it. And it ends up happening because of the lie of the devil, of the devil entering into the hearts of Adam and Eve. The immediate effect is division. The lie believed creates division between human beings and God and between human beings and one another. We're going to see as the story unfolds that they hide from God in the trees and they hide from one another with fig leaves. And this is so destructive to the human condition. Because human beings were created to love God with our whole heart, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is our very core of who we were supposed to be. And yet when the devil comes in and lies and we believe it, we're cut off from that connection with God and we're cut off from that connection with one another. And all of human history unfolds from this moment and we struggle to connect with God and to connect with one another. So the devil is a liar and a divider. That's what he's doing. What are the people doing? What are the people doing? Let's look at verse 6 to find out how they respond to this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. What are the people doing right here? In a word, they sin. They sin. They break the one rule. One rule. That's it. They couldn't even keep one rule. They rebelled against what they were supposed to do by God's design. They took of the fruit and ate of it. Now, just a couple observations about this. Firstly, notice that Adam, at the end of this verse, was with her. She gave some to her husband who was with her. I've heard a lot of bad theology over the years that somehow Eve, women are the weaker sex, I've heard people say. Clearly because Eve fell into this temptation and she's culpable of sin and then she tricked Adam. It's not really what it says here. Adam is right there with her. Her. He's as culpable as she is. You could even argue that his silence in this whole dialogue between his wife and the serpent makes him quite culpable, doesn't it? Makes him as responsible as her. He's right there with her. He takes the fruit. So sorry, guys, we're not off the hook. 
You can't believe that bad theology that says women lead us into temptation. They lead us into sin. They're right there together. But the second thing I want us to observe about this is that at the beginning here, it says of verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes. Often, sin begins in the eyes. It begins in our observation. I was reading this chapter some years ago with a men's Bible study. And one of the guys stopped right here and he said, I totally get it. He said, sin for me often starts with the eyes. And he said, my neighbor, a few months ago, he got this new Porsche and I see it every morning with my eyes and it's shiny and it's beautiful and my heart is led into all kinds of sin. I see this beautiful Porsche. I even walk over towards the driveway and I smell the beautiful smell of the leather on the seats. And I start thinking really bad thoughts about my neighbor. He doesn't deserve a car like that. I do. And he said, even when I'm sitting in the pew in worship, I'm supposed to be focusing on Christ. I'm supposed to be singing and worshiping, but I'm thinking about my neighbor's Porsche. (laughs) It's leading me into all kinds of sin, but it started with the eye. Isn't that so true sometimes? We see something, we behold it and our hearts are led into sin. So the first thing the people do in response to this lying of the devil is they sin. They fall into the temptation. But they also then immediately go to shame and blame. Shame and blame. Verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then in verse 10. Uh, God's asking Adam, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, that's what shame does when we realize, when we feel convicted that we've done a wrongdoing or we've broken some rule, we've somehow let someone down. Our immediate impulse, our immediate instinct is to hide it. So they sow fig leaves for each other. They hide the sin from one another. They hide their nakedness. They're suddenly full of shame. And they hide also behind the trees because they just can't face God. They're, they're full of shame. I know what this feels like. Don't you? When I realize I've done something wrong, I want to just kind of forget about it. I want to cover it up. I don't want to think about it. I want you to know. I don't want to even admit it to myself. I don't want my spouse to know. I kind of wish it never happened. It's like fig leaves over the situation. I certainly don't want to bring it before God. So they shame and they blame there's something almost comical, I guess because it's so familiar, in the way this conversation goes when God asks them about it. Verse 11, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam accepts absolutely zero responsibility in this situation. Who's he blaming? the woman, and God. You gave her to me. He's absolutely irresponsible in this moment. God turns to the woman. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Isn't this amazing? It's so easy to see the sin in other people and not see it in our own lives. I was writing this sermon and I was thinking, how will I illustrate this? How will I illustrate the fact that people believe the lie of the enemy and they sin 
And they're led into division. They're separated from God and they're separated from one another. And nobody wants to admit their own wrongdoing. They only want to blame the people that they're divided from. I was looking out over our society and I was thinking, isn't this happening in our time? We're believing the lies of the enemy and we're allowing that to divide us. And as I was writing my sermon, I realized that I was writing that particular illustration. I was doing the very same thing. I was saying, look at all those people out in society who are believing the lies of the enemy and dividing. I wasn't looking right in here. It's still happening. It's so easy, isn't it? To see the speck in our neighbor's eye and not see the log in our own eye. It's so easy. When you're pointing your finger at somebody and you're blaming them, you forget three fingers are pointing right back at you. We are culpable. We are no different than Adam or Eve. We fall into sin. And we shame and we blame. Now, thank God that's not the end of the story. Thank God that the devil and the people aren't the only two figures In Genesis chapter 3, there's a third figure, there's a third character, there's a third person in the story, and it's the Lord. What's he up to? What's the Lord doing in Genesis chapter 3, and what's the Lord doing in our time now? He is pursuing, he is judging, and he is providing. He's pursuing. He's judging and he's providing. How is he pursuing? I'm not going to reread it now in the interest of time, but God asks Adam and Eve a series of questions after he realizes that they have fallen into temptation from the serpent, from the devil, God still shows up the next morning. Isn't that amazing? In the garden, in the cool of the day. If you think about this, Genesis chapter 3 could have been the end of the Bible. Could have been the end of the whole story. God creates this magnificent creation, and he creates people, and they turn their back on him. They rebel against him. And God could have just said, forget it. I vaporized this creation. I'll start over with a new one. He could have done that. But instead, he's relational. He's loving. He presses in. He shows up for the next appointed time that he wants to meet with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And he asks a series of questions that move towards. They're hiding behind fig leaves and trees, and he's pursuing with questions. Where are you? is his first question. Where are you? Now, this is the God of the universe. God knows where Adam and Eve are. He's all-knowing. This is not an informational question. This is a relational question. He's saying, where are you? And I just want to let the Holy Spirit ask all of us this morning. Where are you? Is there anything you're hiding? From God? Where are you? You see, God is pursuing Adam and Eve, and he's pursuing us. Even when we've sinned against him, he presses in, he pursues. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending love of God. Where are you, he says. He's pressing in. Second question God asks in this pursuit, this relational pursuit of all of us. He says, who told you? Who told you? Whose voice have you been listening to? God knows. 
I just want to let the Holy Spirit ask us that this morning too. Who told you? Whose voice have we been listening to? If there's any messages that we've made agreement with, there's any messages out there that we've let seep into our consciousness, if that message has had the effect, if it's bore the fruit in our lives of cutting us off from God and from one another, then that's the voice of the serpent. It's not the voice of God. Who told you? That's the second question. And the third question God asks is very simple. Did you eat of it? It's a binary question, yes or no. Did, did you sin? Do you sin? Do you sin? Do you sin? Why is nobody nodding their head? Jen, <laughs> one honest person. Yeah, I do. I do. Isn't that funny? It's just a simple question. Do you Sin, do you fall short of the glory of God? Do you break the commandments he's given us? Do you fail to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. See, God is moving towards us in his love, not to condemn us, not to vaporize us, because he's, he's pursuing us in love. Now, you might be surprised by the next thing that I point out that he does here. He's pursuing us, but he also judges. God administers justice. He speaks to all three characters in the story, the serpent, the woman, and the man, and he gives justice to each one of them. He gives judgment to each one. The serpent, he commands that he's cursed. He's going to crawl on his belly. The woman, pain in childbirth, and the man, complications in work. Now, we may think, wait, I thought he was pursuing us in love. What's happening here? Why is God administering justice and judgment to his people? It seems kind of mean, doesn't it? We prefer a God who just says, it's okay. You don't have to pay any consequences. But that wouldn't be a loving thing to do, would it? He wouldn't be a good God if he didn't administer justice. Do you remember after 9-11? I watched one of those documentaries over the last couple of weeks because it was the 20th anniversary. I'm sure some of you did as well. And I was reminded after the horror of 9-11, we saw all that terrorism happen, and we knew that a tremendous injustice had taken place right on our shores. And do you remember what the President of the United States said in his speech that night. He said, we're going to find these evildoers. You guys finish the sentence with me. And we're going to bring them to justice. Yes. And there was something in us that said, yes. We're going to bring them to justice. See, we wouldn't want a God, would we, who would look at evil, who would look at sin and say, it's okay. And so God administers justice to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. God is still a just God. He pursues us in relationship, but he doesn't wink at all the evil that we do, the sin that we participate in. There's judgment. And that's why it's so important. The third thing we see God do in this scripture, he pursues and he judges, but most importantly, he provides. He provides through sacrifice. We see this in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. How gracious of God. He says, you're going to need better clothes than that, than those fig leaves. I know you're covering yourself up in shame, but let me grace you with better clothes. And it's been pointed out by many Bible scholars that this is the first animal sacrifice in all of Scripture. God provides animal skins for Adam and Eve. An animal dies so that they could receive grace. God provides 
And this points to the larger narrative, the larger story that's happening in Genesis chapter 3 and has happened in our world, has happened on the timeline of history, that Jesus Christ has provided his grace for us through his sacrifice on the cross. This is what is pointed to in verse 15. When God is administering the justice to the serpent, this is a very important verse. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He's speaking to the serpent and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want you to picture this. Before we unpack this together, I just want you to visually picture this. It's an image of a man being snake bit, but then crushing the head of the snake who bit him. So just picture a man walking along on a trail and suddenly realizing as he walks along that there's a serpent at his feet And uh uh-oh, the serpent has bit his heel. And in this moment, the man who's been snake bit thinks he's in a lot of trouble because the poison has seeped into his body. And he thinks for a moment that the serpent has won because the serpent has bit his ankle. Until the man realizes, wait a minute, I'm a lot taller than this thing crawling around on the ground. And I can stomp it out. I can kill the very snake that bit me. And this image presented in Genesis 3 verse 15, it's a promise of what would later happen. God is speaking to the serpent and he says, I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, the woman's offspring. What's he talking about? The offspring of the serpent is basically all the, all the hell that would be unleashed after the serpent succeeded in getting even Adam to believe him. All the evil, all the sin, it's the offspring of the evil one and all the evil that we see in our world. But God says, her offspring will crush the head of your offspring. And he's talking about the offspring of of Eve being Jesus. If you go to seminary, you learn that Genesis 3, verse 15, it's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It's the first promise of the gospel in all of Scripture. Can you remember that term, Proto-Evangelion? That's your seminary term for the day. Try to use it three times this week. Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Because it sets up this whole narrative of what would happen, that Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, it looked pretty bad for him. It looked like he had been snake-bitten, didn't it? It looked like the devil had won. It looked like the devil had seeped his poison even into the Son of God, and people mourned appropriately so. But then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and he stomped the head of the serpent and he conquered sin and death. Jesus is victorious over the serpent. Amen. Amen. That was all set up right here at the very beginning, right after the fall. God says the gospel's coming. Victory is coming in Jesus Christ. He will defeat the works of the devil. Now, when you hear that amazing truth, that's the good news, that's the gospel, you might immediately wonder, well, then, if Jesus stomped the head of the serpent, why is there still evil in the world today? I thought he conquered it 2,000 years ago. And the best way that I can describe the answer to that question is to recall a story I heard from my childhood pastor when I was a kid, Pastor Larry. He was trying to help us figure this out too. Why is there still evil in the world if the serpent's head has been crushed by Jesus when he rose from the dead? And Pastor Larry told the story of one day he was driving down an old country road. 
and it was dark, and just his headlights were lighting the road in front of him. And suddenly he realized this large snake was crossing that country road, and he struck it with his car, going full speed. And he was really curious about what had happened to the snake, so he pulled over, put it in reverse, drove back, got out of his car and looked. And he realized that he had severed the head off the snake. But he also realized that the body of the snake was still flopping around on the side of the road. And he thought, that's the time we live in. Satan has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but for some reason, God in his sovereignty, under his sovereign hand, has allowed the works of evil, the works of the devil, to still flop around in our time. We're still experiencing the result of the fall. And he will come again someday to make all things right, but we live in the already and the not yet. And the works of the devil are still flailing around, but victory has already been given to us in Jesus Christ. We have to remember that when we see all the flailing of the evil one in this world. He's been defeated. So that's what the devil's doing. That's what the people are doing. And that's what the Lord is doing. The devil's lying and dividing. People are sinning, shaming, and blaming. But praise the Lord, he's still pursuing, judging, and providing. So the question on our hearts might then be, what do we do now? What do we do? How then do we live? Unfortunately, we have a paragraph from the Epistle to the Romans in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul must have been thinking about Genesis chapter 3. And he gives some instruction for the people of God, the people who are trying to follow God's laws like Adam and Eve did at the very beginning but then fell. People like us who say, I I want to be obedient to God's word. I want to remember his commandments. I don't want to fall into the temptation of sin. Paul, the Apostle Paul, has an instruction for us in light of everything we've just learned from Genesis 3. And he says this, and I hope the Holy Spirit says it to all of us. Here's the takeaway. Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The doctrine that we have been taught, the good news of the gospel, the promises of God, the faithfulness of God and God's word. This is why we read the Bible every week here at Stanwich Church. We're trying to remember what God said so that when the devil tempts us, we'll know it's a lie in light of what we know from the scriptures. Like when the serpent, when the devil tempted Jesus out in the wilderness, he tempted him three times. And how did Jesus respond to the devil each time? By reciting scripture. Jesus did what Adam and Eve failed to do. Jesus is the new Adam. He passed the test that Adam and Eve failed. And we're trying to be like Christ by simply remembering the promises of God when temptation comes our way. Verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience... Stanwich Church is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good 
and innocent to what is evil. Be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. What is God saying there? What does that mean? Well, there's an illustration that I think works well. You've heard me preach it before, but it bears repeating. When bank managers train bank tellers how to spot the counterfeit $100 bill, they don't show them all the variations of the counterfeit bills that people are creating out there. They only study the real thing, the real $100 bill. They study it and they study it so that when they see a fake come across their desk, they can tell right away. That's not right. That's what we're doing. We're remembering the promises of God. We're studying his word. We're gathering in life groups so that we can know the voice of God. We read about Jesus in the gospel so we know the character of Christ so that when the enemy comes and whispers in our ear, we say, nope, mm-mm. That is not the voice of God. I resist that. I know what God's voice sounds like, and that wasn't it. So we need this training. We need this constant digesting of God's word so that we are wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now look at this in verse 20. This is the promise I want to leave us with today. This is awesome. Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet. How cool is that? Paul knows that after Jesus came into the world and he hung on the cross, it looked like the snake had bit him, it looked like the enemy had won. Jesus rose from the dead, crushing the head of the serpent, victorious over the works of the devil. But Paul also knows that those of us who are in Christ, we are positioned with Christ, at the right hand of the Father. If you believe in Jesus Christ and declare with your lips that he is your Savior, you know where you are positionally in the universe? You are in Christ. And where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. And where is Satan? He's under the feet of Jesus who has conquered him. So if you are in Christ, where does that put Satan for you? Under your feet! I know that the devil is flopping around like a dead snake out there and it's terrifying and it's tempting. But remember who you are in Christ. He has defeated the works of the devil. And so when temptation comes your way, you say, no, that's not who I am in Christ. Get under my feet, Satan. And the last words of this verse are what we'll leave with today. What do we feel what do we know is the whole story from beginning to end, really? It's the grace, the grace of Christ. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.